Good morning, Firewell Bible Fellowship. Hey, it's good to be with you here on this uh, rainy August morning. Those of you that don't know me, my name is Kevin Davis, and I am one of the elders here at Firewell Bible Fellowship. Um, it's so good to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we know, a number of people don't have the opportunity to do that. Uh, we do want you to know um, that you are loved. Maybe it's your first Sunday here, or maybe you've been coming here for years, but we want you to know that you are loved. We are as excited as we are every Sunday as we get to listen to our worship band and hear a message from Pastor Chris as well. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we exalt your name and we lift you up, Lord. For you are worthy, Lord, of all praise, glory, and honor. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to be together with one another this morning. We thank you, Father, most of all for the cross, for the blood of Jesus, for his broken body. We thank you that there is nothing that can ever separate us from your love. Father, we want to pray that the service this morning is pleasing to you. We pray, Father. Um, that your name is glorified through it. And Lord, we want to pray this morning for the, our brothers in Haiti, uh, Andrickson and Magdala Descalinas, with everything they're going through right now, Lord, that you would just protect the family, give them courage and wisdom, Lord. I pray unity among them and the other believers in Haiti. We worship you, we exalt your name, for you are worthy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Firewheel. So good to be with you today. It's going to be a great day. I'd like to um, take a second, though, and um, introduce Summer Lewis. She's new to our worship team, so welcome. Yay. We always welcome new people, singers, players. Um, anyone interested, um, just please, you can email me or uh, send me a text. But you're always welcome. We love filling up this platform with people who are worshiping God. So have everybody raise up, stand up, and we'll start our worship. Yeah. 
How wonderful, right? All right, uh, let's be seated. Ushers, I invite you to come on down. We're going to take our offering this morning. Um, I want to encourage you. We have three or four different ways of giving an offering. You can give uh, through the baskets that are passed every single week. Uh, we also have boxes uh, strategically placed in the auditorium. And as we exit, uh, you can also text to give. Uh, that information, I believe, is right here uh, by mail or also online. But I want to encourage you in your spiritual walk. There is an important transition that happens where we go from being uh, just takers to being givers. And it's an important part of our spiritual life to support the work of the church. And so I want to encourage you this morning in my own spiritual life as a family, uh, we, we try to target, like our goal is 10%. And I, I'll tell you, it's not, it's not easy. And, and we're still working at it. We're still a work in progress. But we have made a... a a giving of our resources to the local church, a part of our spiritual rhythm, and it, it teaches us. It's a part of the Father's heart. Our God is a giving God. And so we have that privilege of being givers as well and to support the work of this wonderful church so that sound biblical teaching uh, can not only be ours, but for those who are not yet here. Amen? All right, so Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for all that you have given us. Everything that we have is a gift from you. We were told that every good thing comes down from you, our Father in heaven. Uh, and so, Lord, we rejoice. Uh, Lord, something that is, that is often overlooked in my own spiritual heart and life is to be thankful. Lord, to focus in on the things that are negative and the, and the things that are not happening, the things I don't have, to overlook the incredible blessings that are mine and, and ours. And so, Lord, today we just rejoice. We want to say thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us, that these good things in our lives, while easy to overlook, are, are beautiful gifts. And so, Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice and thank you for the opportunity we have to be of service in a tangible way, Lord, to give of our resources so uh, that, Lord, your church can be blessed and resourced so that, that more and more, Lord, provision can be made so that sound biblical teaching can not only be ours but for others, so that, Lord, we're always mindful uh, of those who are not here yet. Uh, that they would have that wonderful experience that we have, that they would be able to come in and be loved and, uh, Lord, grow in your scriptures. So, Lord, today we thank you for the privilege, the honor we have of giving. And I pray that you are honored by it. Use these resources. Give us wisdom and direction as, as, as the elders and as the leadership and the direction of this ministry of this church. May these be used, these resources, for your glory, for your honor, Lord Jesus. And we pray this all in your holy name. Uh, amen. Amen.
won't prosper when the darkness falls it won't prevail cause the god i serve knows only how to triumph my god will never fail no my god will never fail and i'm gonna see a victory i'm gonna see a victory
at 4 p.m. Have you ever been to a newcomer's luncheon? August 22nd, immediately following the service, come join us for some great food and learn about who we are at Firewheel and how to get connected. Sign up online or in the lobby and let us know you're coming. Want to learn how to study the Bible verse by verse? Foundations, on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., beginning September 1st, you will be given the tools to help strengthen your study of the Bible and help you grow in your relationship with Christ. For more info on these or any of our other events, go online to firewheelfellowship.com or you can always check us out on social media. All right. Good morning, Firewheel Bible Fellowship. How you doing? Right on. Hey, Keegan McCarthy. Oh, thank you very much. Hey, I want to introduce you. This is Keegan McCarthy for over a year. Uh, he was an interim with our youth ministry, did a phenomenal job. He is now in a, a brand new position. He is our community life and outreach director slash bring Chris ice cream on Sunday morning. Um, and so if you are new to Firewheel or you want to get plugged in at Firewheel or you like being in a golf tournament or you want to be on a softball team or if you want to be more involved, vitally involved in the church, this is the guy you want to see, Keegan McCarthy. He's also very eligible as a bachelor, so if you all know of anybody, <laughs> his mother would really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, Keegan. Uh, is there anything better? Hmm. Is there anything better than Bluebell? Yes. Yes. Oh, whatever. I, I guarantee this ice cream I'm having is better than the ice cream you're having right now. <laughs> so tonight, this afternoon, 4 o'clock, we're having our ice cream social. And so if you like from Bluebell and some opportunities to, to have a conversation, get to know some people here in the church, Four o'clock. Uh, we're going to be over in the youth building. Uh, honey, would you, would you mind? Jeremiah, come here. This is Jeremiah. He's our six-year-old. I'm sure he's going to find out what, where to put that. He is our favorite child. Thank you for pointing that out. Was that Josiah, Charlie? Josiah. He's, he's now 15, Josiah, and uh, he is absolutely convinced. Yep. One year away from driving, he is convinced that Jeremiah is our favorite child, and, and he's accurate. So, um, 
We love all of our children equally, all five of them, but one of them just a little bit more. So Matthew, everybody have your Bibles, word? Let's see it, let's see your Bibles. Come on, lift those things up. Already got Bibles. Anybody got a pen out there? Y'all ready? You ready to take some notes? Got a pen? Nice. You got a pad? Anybody got a pad of paper? Look at those pads out there. Y'all ready? How many of y'all have a sermon buddy? A sermon buddy. We have them at the front doors. They're available. If you would like a sermon buddy, raise your hand. Uh, Greg, thank you, Greg. Uh, we'll be handing those out. This, is, this helps you walk through the passage. I will literally draw attention to the questions. And by the time you walk out of here, you will have a verse-by-verse study of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, which is what we're looking at. So let's turn there. Matthew 2, we are, we are now, uh, now stepping out of chapter 1, which is foundational, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and murder him and worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Lord, we are turning to your scriptures, and we ask that as we we unfold your scriptures, that that what we take away from, from this study this morning is a greater view of you, Jesus. Show us yourself. Reveal yourself to us in and through your word. Uh, Lord, whatever is of me, let that win away, let that burn away. But whatever is of you, let it remain. And like, like seed and fertile soil, may it produce abundant fruit in our lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So chapter 1, last week we, we walked through, over two weeks, all of chapter 1. We saw first that Jesus is the rightful king. He is in the line of David. He is of the son of Abraham. He is of the line. He is the Messiah. We saw that in the genealogy uh, in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1. Matthew 1, 1, in fact, opening with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we unfolded through the narrative of Jesus' birth, and we established that Jesus is Savior. As the angel declared to a distraught Joseph in a dream, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? 
For he will save his people from their sins. And so my hope is that from here on out, every time you hear the name or think the name or read the name Jesus, I want you to immediately say or think, Savior. Okay? So every time, even that, that, uninti- that, that person that doesn't realize they blaspheme the glorious name, when they, when they yell out the name Jesus, I want you to immediately be like, Savior. And when you hear the word or read the word or think the word Christ, I want you to immediately think or say, King. And when we put it together, Jesus Christ, Savior, King. Chapter 1. And we came to discover that chapter 1 is absolutely foundational, that if you remove chapter 1, the foundation of the New Testament, it gives way. That there's nothing to hold to support it up. We need chapter 1 of Matthew, and what a great study that was. We pick up in Matthew 2. The theme of Matthew's gospel continues that Jesus is the king, the rightful king of Israel. And what we discover as we, as we study Matthew chapter 1 and move into chapter 2, there's, there's quite a bit of information that's not included in the gospel of Matthew that is included in the gospel of Luke. In fact, some very important details as far as the birth of Jesus. Because the narrative of Matthew reads as if all of that unfolded took place in Nazareth. In fact, when we open up to Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Which would leave any student of the book of Matthew asking the question, How did they get to Bethlehem? I thought they were in Nazareth. How was Jesus born in Bethlehem? And why is that important? And so we're going to start with the question, how did Mary and Joseph and Jesus end up in Bethlehem? By the way, that's a question on your sermon, buddy. And I'm really glad that you asked the question, because that's one we're going to answer. How did they end up in Bethlehem? Well, I'm going to say uh, right from the outset, you do not need to turn to to Hallmark, a a greeting card during Christmas for the answer. You don't need to queue up the Charlie Brown Christmas special to find out. We don't need to turn to pop culture or seasonal yard art or our favorite nativity set that may not be 100% accurate. All we need to do is flip in our Bibles over to the right to the Gospel of Luke Chapter 2, verse 1. Let us get our truth, let us get our theology from the Scripture and not from pop culture. Luke 2. And not from tradition. Boy, traditions can be really misleading. Have you ever had a tradition that you held to and then all of a sudden you studied the Scripture and you're like, whoa, that's not even accurate. Uh, Chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel, verse 1, it says, In those days... Uh, You may ask the question, in those days, what days? Well, in the days of the unfolding, the revealing of the Christ to Israel, the arrival of Christ, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when or before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so what this does is it gives us a timestamp. And Luke, the historian and physician, was very much in tune with not only recording the narrative, but recording it within the context of actual history. This is the unfolding of actual history. The first registration, so this would put this somewhere around 5 or 4 B.C. And so I'm just going to add a little note here because this was kind of confusing. When I first came into the church, I was told that Jesus was basically born in the year one. How many of y'all heard that? That he was born in the first year of the first century A.D. 
But reality is, uh, we kind of got the, the, the calendar wrong. And so really, Jesus was born more like in 5 or 4 B.C., uh, based upon our current calendar. And I know many of us hold to the tradition that Jesus was born in December. I mean, that's when we celebrate the birth of Christ. That's when we remind ourselves of how our king came into the world. But we actually have no idea what month he was born in. So we have a Roman-wide census, uh, very similar to the problematic census uh, that we just went through this last year. Uh, we're now getting results from. Uh, but a little different, because what it required was for those who were going to be a part of the registry, they had to go back to where their family registry was kept, which sent Joseph and Mary, uh, who now is far along in her pregnancy, south about 90 miles to the city of Bethlehem, Luke 2, verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5. It says, And all went, all being all of the Roman citizens, all who were under Roman rule, went to be registered each to his own town. And listen to this. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David. What does that make you think of? The city of David. You should immediately think king. He is of the line and lineage of David, because he was of the house of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So somewhere along Mary's pregnancy, probably uh, late in pregnancy, Joseph and Mary pack up, leave Nazareth, along with all the other people who were traveling to their towns of registry, and they head south. So here's a map. Uh, of where they were headed. And so they were in the city of Nazareth, just you see the south, uh, kind of southwest of the, the Sea of Galilee. And they traveled the 90 miles all the way down to the city of Bethlehem. And that's where we, we see, that's where they arrived to, and that is where Jesus is born. And we know what happened, right? Verses 6 and 7 of Luke 2. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Every woman who has given birth to a child knows what that time is, that moment. Uh, I, I've seen it in my wife's eyes when she's like, it's time. And I realize at that moment, it doesn't mean it's time to make supper or it's time to clean the house. It's time to have a baby, which elicits in me all sorts of panic. But that time came and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because why? There was no place for them in the inn. It's this quiet and humble labor and delivery room. We see a stable uh, really that was fit for animals was the birthplace of our king. And we know, right? Like we know that at that moment there were shepherds in the field by night and they are the first to hear the great news that, that the angelic appeared to them and that this, this day a, a Savior's been born and, and they rejoice, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. And these shepherds, they, they are given a sign, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger and they, they run towards Bethlehem and they find the child. And there he is. And they rejoiced, and they spread the news. They were the first to proclaim the good news of Jesus' arrival. And they began to spread the news that Jesus has come. But as you read through Luke's gospel on that storied Christmas night, there is no mention of wise men, 
No mention or reference of camels, no three kings from Orient far. One of the surprising, I think more surprising aspects of Luke's narrative is really how it ends. It's sort of uneventful, right? Like the shepherds spread the news, and then that's sort of it. It seems after that that Mary uh, and baby Jesus and Joseph kind of settled into life in Bethlehem. We know at eight days Jesus was circumcised. We know at 40 days he was presented in the temple a, a, a humble offering uh, of sacrifice uh, and, and ritual purification of, of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. We know that while in the temple, as a baby, uh, uh, Simeon and a godly Anna recognized that this was Messiah. But Jesus' trip to the temple was pretty uneventful. And then as we, we kind of piece it together, Mary and Jesus and Joseph went back to Bethlehem, and that's where they settled in. That's where they were. That's where they started their young married family. Y'all remember that, married couples? Remember that little place you started? Your young married family had that, that first home and that first apartment. Ours was a, our, the first studio, like apartment. It was like the size of a shoebox, but it was ours. We were like, ah. Oh. And that's where we started our journey. Well, that's where they start in Bethlehem. And maybe Joseph opened up a little shop for carpentry. Maybe he went to work for a carpenter, but we know they didn't head back to Nazareth. And I can imagine they were in no hurry to get back to Nazareth. I could imagine... They would have faced uh, quite a bit of, of uh, negativity if they would gone got home. People uh, in the community uh, criticizing them maybe for being pregnant before being married. But we know as time passed, somewhere between a few months or maybe a year or more uh, has passed before the wise men show up. And so let's turn back to Matthew chapter 2. It answers the question, how did they end up in Bethlehem? So back to Matthew 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. And as we go through uh, these 14 verses, we're going to be asking and answering five specific questions. The first question we're going to ask is, who is Herod the king? He plays a pretty dominant role in this second chapter of Matthew. Secondly, who were the wise men and how many were there? Uh, third, what did they see in the sky, and how did they know that it meant that Christ had been born? Fourth, what had the wise men come to do? And then fifth and final, what do we do when we finally meet Jesus? So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and we, we just unfolded how that all took place in Judea, in the days of Herod the king. We are now introduced to Herod the king. And we already know that it has been established that Jesus is the true king, which is interesting because now we're introduced to another king who was the supposed king of Judea or the king of Israel. So the question is, who is Herod? Here is a portrait uh, of Herod. Uh, looks like a, a, a real guy you want to just kind of hang out with, right? Uh, he was known as Herod the Great. Uh, he was placed in, in Judea by the Roman Senate, as king of Judea by the Roman Senate. And he ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Uh, he's considered very successful, gifted politically. In fact, he was able to survive multiple emperors. Uh, but here's what he was known for. Yes, he built a lot of great things. And he was known for the temple in Jerusalem. It was titled Herod's Temple. But he was known for his brutality. I quote here from the New Illustrated Bible commentary. 
Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, reportedly said in a paraphrase of a Greek play on words that he would rather be Herod's sow, that is his pig, uh, the Greek word hus, than his son, Greek huios. In his later years, uh, which is actually when we run into Herod, uh, apparently he'd become quite sick, uh, not only spiritually sick, that is evidenced by what we're going to read, but also physically sick in extreme paranoia. He started having his close associates, his wife, and even some of his children murdered so that uh, no one could steal his throne. And so what we have here is a violent, paranoid resident king of Judea and then all of a sudden, a group of wise men show up looking for the king of Israel. And it wasn't Herod that they were looking for. Verse 1 continues, Behold, wise men from the east, when you read that, by the way, unexpectedly, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he? Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to what? What did they come to do? To worship him. And so we're looking at the, the next couple of questions. Who are the wise men? How many were there? And what did they see in the sky? And how did they know it meant that Christ was to be born? Well, when it comes to the wise men, uh, first answering the question, how many were there, here's the reality. We have no idea. Now, tradition states uh, that based upon the three gifts offered that there were three wise men, I don't think that's accurate. In fact, I agree with J. Vernon McGee, who offers that somewhere between three and 300 wise men show up. I believe this was a massive entourage. Because we're going to see that the, the whole of Jerusalem is troubled by their arrival. I think this was a massive group that had showed up looking for a king. Uh, we're not entirely sure of who they are. Uh, in fact, when, it's, when we read wise men in our scriptures, in some of your versions it may read magi, uh, it's not so much a, 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 a name of a person, it's a title. So in Greek, the word that is translated as wise men is magioi, uh, and in English, we transliterate that. And in English, it's magi. And, and what that word is, is really a Persian title. And it described a group of people who were experts in the stars. They were astrologers, interpreters of dreams, magicians, fortune tellers. I mean, we see stuff like this on television today. And, and just like it is today, it was then. Most of them were complete charlatans. But what we see with this group of magi from the east... They were coming from a city, most likely Babylon, and they had come because they saw something. And somehow they knew what it meant. Uh, we know that the Jews had taken uh, the scriptures with them to Babylon. We know that Daniel was chief among the Magi some 600 years before Jesus was born. So I believe they had scripture. They had something, but they saw something. So the question is, what did these wise men see in the sky, and how did they know that it meant the Christ had been born? Well, what they saw was, is a divine mystery. We really have no idea. 
Some have supposed that, that during that time there were certain celestial events. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was the aligning of certain planets that happened rarely. Or maybe it was a supernova. They saw something. But what I believe happened at this moment was God revealed to them that the Christ had been born. And, and maybe they knew a scripture. There is, in fact, an obscure scripture buried in the book of Numbers that, that's, that almost reads as if not, not only did they see a star, but they had a scripture. It is the, the recorded prophecy of a guy by the name of Balaam. And, and listen to what Balaam said. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's the only passage like it in the Old Testament where both a star and a scepter are referenced, which is clearly speaking of Messiah. Uh, it reminds me of Psalm 19 telling us that the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth is handiwork. It doesn't surprise me that, that something celestial, something significant happened when Jesus was born. Even the heavens celebrated the arrival of Christ. So what these men had was essentially a scripture and a star, and they head for Jerusalem. It's a trip of probably 1,600 to 1,700 miles. Here's a, here's a map. Uh, and they most likely left from Babylon, traveling along what was uh, called the Fertile Crescent. They would not travel across the desert, but they, they take this long trip, some 1,600 to 1,700 miles, like this epic adventure. And all they had was a star and a scripture. But that was enough for them. And they came to Jerusalem, and we were told why. What had the wise men come to do? Uh, Matthew 2.2. 2. They said, where is he? Where, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We've just traveled 1,700 miles. We have come. We saw his star. We saw it when it rose. And we have come to what? to worship him. I love the word worship. It is the Greek word proskuneo. And, and essentially what it means, it means to fall down and worship, to prostrate oneself in reverence. And you know what this tells me? They weren't just seeking an ordinary king. They weren't just seeking some old king, but they were seeking the king. And it must have been shocking to them to, to arrive at Jerusalem, knowing that the king of Israel had been born, and no one in Jerusalem was aware of it. It was like they showed up, and they're looking around, expecting to see the city exuberant and excited in worship of their king, and nobody has any idea he's been born. It's staggering. But good old Herod immediately takes notice of these magi and the claims that the king has come. Verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You see, Herod saw himself as the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews did not embrace Herod as their king, but he saw himself as the king. And when it says he was troubled, this, this makes us think that he was terrified, but also furious. Where is he? 
And you better believe if Herod was troubled, so was Jerusalem, because this would have reeked of an uprising, an attempted overthrow of power. So Herod calls for the experts in Jewish scriptures, knowing that within the scriptures are the prophecies. And so in verse 4 through 5, it says, In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him. And Bethlehem of Judea. This is crazy to me. They knew. It's not like these experts had to, like, go consult experts. It's like they knew Micah 5 too. They knew where Messiah was to be born. And they could quote it. Quoting uh, Micah, so there, for so it is written... By the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you know what we should do as believers? We should immediately read this and be like, that's about Jesus. That prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, that's a prophecy about Jesus. We know the truth. And what blows my mind is the chief priests and the scribes, they knew the scripture. They knew where the Messiah was to be born. They didn't have to go consult other experts. And I'm sure they had heard something. I mean, maybe at least a little something about a child that had been born in Bethlehem. Maybe they had heard rumors that this child was supposedly born of a virgin. Jesus had literally been in the temple of Jerusalem. Simeon knew it. Anna knew it. But the religious leaders had no clue. And what I find even more telling is that hearing the news from the wise men, they should have been running for Bethlehem. They should have been sprinting towards Bethlehem. But that is not what happened. You see, family, knowing the scriptures and, and, and truly knowing Jesus is not the same thing. You see, these wise men, these magi, these gentle, Gentile worshipers, they had a star and a scripture. Bring up the map, please. Thank you, Jess. They had a star and a scripture, and they were willing. Like, they were ready 1,600 to 1,700 miles. It was a short road trip. But when the religious leaders heard that apparently the king of the Jews had been born, and they knew that it was in Bethlehem, the next map, please. They literally could not travel the five miles to Bethlehem. That blows my mind. That you have a group of people that had a scripture and a star. And then you had another group of people who had the scriptures, they had the Torah, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the temple and the sacrifices, and just hearing that possibly, maybe, the Messiah had been born. They could not travel five miles to check it out. And you know what that gets me thinking about? It gets me thinking about, uh, you know, those who today know a lot about Jesus. You know, maybe they grew up in the church and in the Bible, and then they hit high school. You know, high school students, I'm going to tell you right now, your faith is under attack. And it's usually in high school where students start to drift away. And it's usually by college where they've walked away. 
And then all of a sudden, these, these students who know the scriptures, like they've been raised in the faith and they know the Bible, then all of a sudden, they're like, ah, I don't really know, it's not all that important. And then and they just kind of drift off into college. And then all of a sudden, we start regurgitating the propaganda of a fallen and sick culture. Oh, man made this and man made that. And even though we know and we have the scriptures and maybe we went to church camp or maybe we gave our life to Christ, but then all of a sudden we walk away and we're so close. But we can't travel that little bit of distance to truly meet Christ. And I think it's crazy that we literally drive by churches all day long. There's churches everywhere and people literally can't just walk the few feet it takes to actually go inside a church and maybe, maybe, just maybe come to discover that Jesus isn't just the Savior of the world, that Jesus is, is my Savior, your Savior, our Savior, and to truly meet Jesus. And so the question I have, which one are we? You know, there are some people that know a lot and they just aren't willing to go the, the extra distance. And then I think there are some who only hear a little bit about Jesus and they're willing to travel any length to meet him. They're like thousands of miles. Is that all I have to do? That's a short road trip. I got wake up early. I'm up. Stay up late. I'm staying up. I want to scour the scriptures. I want to know who Jesus is. And all they have is a little bit. And yet they've got a fire and a passion and a hunger that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then all of a sudden you meet people that know a lot, and they're like, eh, not interested. And you're like, but it's right here. I don't have time for that. How far are you willing to go to truly meet Jesus? How far are you willing to go? How much are you willing to invest? If it is truly the difference between life and death, how much are you willing to give of yourself, to lay down yourself, to die to self, that maybe you might gain life? Oh, that five miles would not keep us from a truly intimate growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Matthew 2, 7. Herod taking more interest in Messiah than the religious leaders. I mean, for more sinister purposes, but at least there is something, some movement in him. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He's like, so, by the way, uh, roughly when did that take place? And we'll see later, he's going to use this data. Anything he gathers, he's, he's got a reason for asking. Uh, roughly. Imagine the wise men relayed the information somewhere within a two-year time frame, Matthew 2.8. And he sent them to Bethlehem. He's like, okay, go search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and destroy him slash worship him, right? Good old Herod. I mean, thinking he could destroy the Christ. And in fact, the only reason we talk about Herod is because he's somehow connected to Christ. If, if, if Herod wasn't directly, in, we'd never talk about the guy. He'd be lost to the sands of history. Oh, the kings of this earth today who think there's something significant. They're yesterday's news and the turn of a new year. But the true king, Christ, oh, he has come. Verse 9, after listening to the king, a king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is incredible. 
all of a sudden the star appears again. As they are headed for Bethlehem, the star again appears. I can imagine they were weary. I mean, that would have been so discouraging to get to Jerusalem and have such a lackluster response that they must have been like, did we get this wrong? Did we just travel 1,700 miles? I mean, how do they not know? And all of a sudden, as they head towards Bethlehem, that that five-mile walk, all of a sudden, there it is again. They see the star. And you know what this tells me? Any true seeker, if you were a true seeker, and you really are seeking God, and you are seeking to know Jesus, that God will reveal it to you. He just will. I mean, I see here uh, God providing the star to lead the way, but here's the deal. If we are not really seeking God, if we're not really seeking Jesus, the heavens can literally be torn open, and we wouldn't take the least step towards Christ. But listen to the reaction, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like, I would love to just show you this in the way it's structured in Greek. It's like, it's so beautiful. Because sometimes what the writers would do is they would, they would combine, they would stack superlatives together as a literary way to emphasize emotion. That something is happening, something is being expressed that is, that is great emotion. It's this beautiful literary device that's kind of lost in English. But in Greek, it literally reads, they rejoiced with joy very greatly. And as I think about that, I'm like, that's the kind of joy we should have. You know, okay, so there's joy. Joy's like, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. And then there's rejoicing with joy very greatly. It's like, yes! Oh my gosh, there's a song! And they're running. They're running to Bethlehem. What happened to the Passion Church? Weren't we excited once? Didn't it excite us to worship Jesus? Weren't we pumped to go to church? Do y'all remember those days? With a joyful song, I led the procession, says David. Oh, I danced like David danced, and I sang like David sang. I will become more undignified than this before my king. Do y'all remember when it was a joyous thing to worship? To come into the church? We get lulled out there into believing that joy is found in some other thing, some other relationship, some other purchase, some other accomplishment. There is nothing more joyous than knowing Christ. And to gather with other joy-filled believers, sometimes we gather together like a bunch of spiritual Eeyores. You know Eeyore from, from Winnie the Pooh? My tail fell off again. Storm cloud. There should be a joy, like exceedingly great joy. Yes! Is it Sunday? Really? Let's go! You sure you don't want to eat pan- pancakes? What? We're going to eat heavenly bread. We're going to get our worship on. Exceedingly great joy. What kind of joy should we have? Exceedingly great joy. And again, what did they come to do? They came to worship. Isn't that why we gather? Matthew 2, verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down, and they worshiped him. 
This is beautiful. Again, things are being combined. We got two words. They fell down, which is the Greek word pipto, and it, and it basically means to throw oneself to the ground in humble, humble devotion, and they worship, which is proskuneo, which means to fall down and worship, to prostrate oneself in, in, in reverence. And I would demonstrate this, but I might get injured, but they threw themselves on the ground. Remember that song, I Can Only Imagine? I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Oh, and all of you be still. Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing? Hallelujah, will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine, I can only imagine. They worship, they worship. These men throw themselves to the ground in humble devotion. They fall down and worship Jesus in complete reverence. The question is, what will you do when you finally meet Jesus? What do we do? Would we give him anything less? You will notice there is no mention of worship or homage being paid to Mary. We do not worship or venerate or pray to Mary. There is no scriptural or theological foundation for that spiritual practice. Mary does not intercede for us. We don't need somebody to intercede for us. We are free to approach Christ. Just as these wise men do, they fall down and worship, and these men worshiped. And you know what? Even Mary bent her knee to King Jesus, and she worshiped. And I love how these men, they do not come empty-handed. Like, think about this. If it's somewhere between three and 300 magi, I mean, it's cool with the three magi, right? It's like kind of quiet, and it's like, oh, here's some gifts. But imagine if it was 300 people that just threw themselves onto the ground and worship. And there were three representatives of the magi who were allowed to approach even more intimately, and they present three significant gifts. Extravagant worship, right? Like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so much is written about these three gifts that, that sometimes we get lost in it that we forget that the focal point is Jesus. A quote here from the New Illustrated Bible Commentary, everything in this passage centers on the Lord. Mary is a bystander. Joseph is not even mentioned. Christ is the recipient of the homage and the gifts. He is to have preeminence in everything. Gold symbolizing his royalty. The frankincense, the fragrance of his faithfulness, and myrrh was the ointment of his death. Even at his birth, we were reminded why Jesus has come. Why has Jesus come? To save us from our sins. For family, supremely, for our spiritual life, what we need more than anything is a savior. And so the question is, what do we bring? What do you bring when we come into the presence of the king? Do we bring extravagant gifts? Absolutely. We bring him our best. But what else do we bring with us? Let us not forget that we also bring with us our extravagant sin. 
We often believe that when we approach Jesus, we can only bring our best or should only bring our best, which is true, but to experience the fullness of Jesus's ministry in our lives, to experience the fullness of grace, we must, lest it kill us, bring to Jesus our most detestable and utterly depraved sin so that we may be forgiven and saved. For he has come to save us from our sins. Let us not pretend, let us not play the imposter before the king and present him our best where we hide our worst. Let us bring to him our worst that we may find forgiveness and grace in our time of need. And we will find that, no, the Lord is not repulsed by our worst. He is drawn to us even more because he has come to save us from our sins. He does not turn away from us in our sins. He wraps his loving arms around us in our sins. And he cleanses and forgives. For that is why he has come. And these wise men, when they are through with their worship, they receive an ominous warning. Verse 12, do not forget, Christian, the enemy of your soul prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who we may devour. There is an enemy of the Christian, and he is after you. He will woo you with sweets and delicacies that seem palatable at the moment, but are death when you ingest. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then as they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's where we will pick up our study next week. So the question as we conclude here is, what does this passage teach us a lot? You know, it teaches me a lot. You know, it teaches me that not everything sold by Hallmark is accurate. I know that's a shock. And just because it's a tradition doesn't mean it's accurate. You know, just because it pops up in seasonal yard art doesn't mean it's accurate. And we, we have to pull our understanding of God and who Christ is from the scriptures. You know, we need to have our understanding rooted in the text and not in traditions. This shows me that we can be so close yet so far away. You can be sitting in a chair right now. You are literally hearing that Christ is the Savior of the world, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, and he is risen. You can literally be one confession away of saying, Lord Jesus, I believe. Please forgive me of my sins. Please cleanse me of my unrighteousness that I may have life. And at that moment, exactly where you sit today, you could be saved. You could be that close. You could be literally up against the threshold of the kingdom of God, and yet you still will not take that next step. And yet there are some who are so buried in the depth of their darkness that a little tiny sliver of light breaks in and they go chasing the light and they come running into the church. I need Jesus! We can be so close yet so far away. Where are you in your spiritual life today? We should rejoice with exceedingly great joy because we know Jesus, right? How should we wake up on Sunday morning? Uh, yeah. I hope the preaching's good. I don't know. I, 
like those songs. Her coffee was a little burnt. But we have ice cream. <laughs> or we could wake up on Sunday morning and be like, yes! I may sit in an hour of traffic. This couple, Adrian and Jen, sat in an hour of traffic to be here, and you know what? It's worth it to them. Because they got to come in and they got to teach the truth. It's worth it. Well, I stayed up late on Saturday. Whose fault is that? Have some discipline. Go to bed a little bit early so you can give the Lord your best. Well, my kids have soccer. What is more important? Them becoming the next professional athlete or the salvation of their soul? What is more important? Extracurricular activities? Is that the most important thing for your family? We are being sold a lie. We are being sold a lie that our kids are having their character being developed on the sports field when they're not having their character developed in the church. We develop our ethic and our understanding of right and wrong and who we are as a person. My children may never be famous, but I pray they're faithful. That we'd wake up excited, that our kids would see us excited and joyous. Yes, we get to go to church. We should go to any lengths to meet Jesus. We should bow and worship daily, not just bringing our best and shiniest selves, but our worst and most detestable sin. And I want to end here. The enemy is lurking, seeking to kill Jesus and his followers. Here's the deal. I know this. The enemy, he prowls around, and he's like a bird. Not just a lion, but a bird. You see, the scriptures, it's seed. And this morning, it's been sown. And your life, your heart, is the type of soil. And if it's a hard path, the, the enemy just comes in, he just takes up that seed. It's like the, the word has never been preached to you. It has no effect. It does not permeate the hardness of your heart. But then for others, it, it's like fertile soil. And once that seed hits, it begins to take root. And the enemy comes pecking at it, but he can't reach it. And it goes deep. Roots go deep, fruit comes up. What kind of soil are we today? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your goodness, and I thank you for your holy scripture, and I thank you for the work that it's having in my heart and my life. Lord, I needed this study. Lord, I wake up on days and I just don't feel joyous, and I don't feel free, and I don't get excited. And yet I'm reminded today by the passion of these wise men who traveled so far with so little, and they were excited with a joy that's contagious. And Lord, I am being ignited by their joy. Lord, I'm reminded that we can be so close, it's so far away. If you were here this, this afternoon, this morning, and you were hearing this message, and you are being drawn to Jesus, and you know it, don't fight it. Allow him to save you. Believe in him. He'll give you eternal life. And today I pray that we would, we would have this passion, this desire to worship you, to study your scriptures, to grow. And we pray that we'd have the privilege of inviting others to know you, Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We pray, we pray your provision and protection over us as we go from this place. We pray that your honor blessings this evening as we gather again for some fellowship. Pray that you are honored by that as well. We love you, Jesus. You know me pray. Amen. All right, stand together. Uh, if you would like to know more of what it means to be a follower of Christ, I will be down here up front. I will wait for you.
I'd love to talk to you about that. And if you're looking for some ice cream, 4 o'clock, Bluebell Fellowship, it's going to be over in the student building, but it's time to go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all till we meet again this evening at 4 o'clock. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now let's carry that love outside these doors because I got to believe this world's desperate for it. Have a wonderful afternoon.